0: Whether you are looking for a space to host an intimate gathering or a major celebration, the Westmoreland Museum of American Art offers an artful venue for creating a truly amazing and unforgettable event experience. Don't miss the Bridal and Event Showcase at the museum this Sunday, May 21st from 6 to 9 p.m. Meet a variety of vendors, including florists, caterers, bakeries, jewelers, entertainers, and more. To register for this free event, visit Westmoreland.org.
1: This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 59 is something like, what justifies ethical claims? And we read Alasdair McIntyre's After Virtue from 1981, chapters 1 through 7 and 14 through 18. You can join the discussion, get the text, read lots of supplemental material at partiallyexaminedlife.com This is Mark Linsenmeyer talking to you from Madison, Wisconsin.
2: This is Seth Paskin in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Allen in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. So we gave up the funny intros, is it? They come and go.
1: They will be all the more unpredictable by the fact that they are sometimes there and sometimes not.
3: Hmm. Okay. This has not been a week for funny intros for me.
1: This book has slain us. It has made us lethargic, beaten down.
3: It's quite a book. Yes. I got food poisoning this week, so that was fun. Which
1: chapter did you get that from? (laughs) (laughs) I should say to the listeners that uh, you might want to listen to episode 58 before this one, as that is where we covered the very beginning of the book and a couple of other readings of the book is reacting to. I think we will still have to review enough of that that uh, you'll still get a pretty whole picture of the book from what we're going to say tonight, though.
3: Yeah.
2: Also, you could look at any podcast that's related to the entire history of Western philosophy. That's <laughs> <laughs> a
1: prerequisite for this. <laughs> so, yeah. It's a very broad book. It mentions, <laughs> every chapter mentions, what, at least three or four figures from very disparate traditions. Everything from painting to writing to cooking, right? Really? I don't remember painting and cooking. I'm not sure. Oh, there's a lot about well, painting. Painting is, there. is oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah.
2: portrait painting stuff. Cooking, I don't remember it. But... Well, there isn't the the deep analysis of it, so... The Julia Child's chapter. (laughs) The internal joy
3: of cooking. It's the intelligible actions. That's what... Yes. Cookbooks are examples of intelligible actions, such as would make analytic philosophers drool. Ah.
1: Well, to maybe briefly review last time, Mr. McIntyre says the state of ethical discourse today is incoherent, that we are using terminology that we inherited from bygone eras in which the people that initiated it had assumptions that we no longer share. So that when we now say things like this is good or this is right, we're more or less talking nonsense. We're pushing our own opinions, our own ungrounded sentiments on others. But that's not the way ethics has to be. It's not the way it should be. And if we would have just stuck to how the ancients dealt with it back to the age of Aristotle, there's something crucial there that has been lost now.
2: Specifically, there's a tension and Contemporary ethical discourse. On the one hand, it seems merely like an expression of preference, and there are these interminable debates. And on the other hand, there are gestures towards there being these objective standards. But the objective standards historically that we try to rely on after Aristotle have failed. Well, in particular, post Enlightenment, right? Yeah. Yeah. The Enlightenment rejection of Aristotelian teleology is what led to this problem. And a lot of the book is, of course, the sketching out of. This history of moral theory and how the rejection of Aristotelian teleology led to all these problems with establishing objective standards and then different attempts which successively failed.
1: Right. So now even the questions we ask in moral discourse, he thinks are just kind of wrong headed that we approach ethics as something like, how do we justify ethical claims? We think that this is good or this is right is a claim that should be true or false in any given case. And if we got a theory that would enable us to cover all of the possible cases, then we could apply that theory to this particular case. And then you and I would both agree on the particular outcome and we'd be able to make
0: consistent laws
1: and all that kind of stuff.
0: And he thinks that's just total baloney. More than that, he thinks that is a gross misunderstanding of the way ethical claims work. And it seems to me that's part of what his book is trying to establish. He certainly points us back towards Aristotle, but he doesn't do so in a simplistic way of saying, well, we should just all become Aristotelian in a particular sense. It has to do with the way you understand what moral arguments are or the existence of moral facts. Which he wants to say exist, they're contingent, they're a product of our cultures, but nonetheless, that doesn't mean that they don't exist. In fact, one of his deep criticisms goes to, I guess this is what he would mean by the teleology, that we can, of course, have our facts embedded in our histories, and that does not make them non-factual.
2: Well, let's look at his rejection of Hume's radical separation between ought and is, because that's really what teleology amounts to here. And a lot of this is in chapter five. He touches on it elsewhere. But for Hume, with merely factual premises, you can't ever derive anything that's normative or evaluative. So you can't make general claims about human beings or human nature and then get to some sort of evaluative claim as a result of that. So, for instance, you couldn't say that it's human nature to be compassionate towards others. Therefore, compassion is a good thing, let's say. But as McIntyre points out, there are concepts which are functional or have normative content built in. So for instance, the idea of a watch, if you said a watch is too heavy to carry around and doesn't keep good time, then McIntyre's idea is that it'd be legitimate to derive the conclusion that it's a bad watch. And in a sense, the concept of a watch has some sort of normative content, even though what we say about a watch Is factual. So there you get this idea that there are facts about the world which sort of have normativity or value built into them. And that's related to this Aristotelian concept of teleology or of there being certain kinds of beings, organisms especially, that have ends built into them by virtue of, well, for Aristotle it was biology. We'll see that's different with MacIntyre, but by virtue of their structure, they tend to certain ends or goals as a matter of fact.
0: And this distinction between fact and value that McIntyre points to being at the center of the Enlightenment is sort of one of the main touchstones for what he sees as just being the problem. I think you made a nice summary there, Wes. It's directly related to the ought and is question. Yeah. Our facts involve values? So, in a funny way, he completely embraces something like a postmodernist view that everything is values. <laughs>
2: Well, it's unclear whether everything is—because Hume's argument is just that if there are non-normative premises, you can't derive normative conclusions. So really, McIntyre, even though he kind of purports to challenge that, it's not really a challenge to that idea McIntyre is saying, well, actually, many premises that are purportedly non-normative actually are normative. And it could be the case. Mm. Like, Dylan, you're right. Some will claim that, well, any supposedly purely factual sentence is actually normative to some degree. So that's one route you could go. So he doesn't really address that, but, yeah.
3: I thought what McIntyre was saying in this section was that the concepts that we have of objects, like the concept of a watch or the concept of a farmer, has implicit in it the concept of what it means to be a good watch or a good farmer, because right. there's a notion of what exactly a watch is supposed to be good for or what a farmer is supposed to be good at. The context in which he brought it up around Hume was that he's saying the issue is that with Aristotle and the Aristotelian tradition all the way through up until Pascal, there was a notion of that human beings had that same kind of conceptual There was something it meant to be a good human being, and then we lose that at some point. That's what that example is, I thought, meant to tease out.
2: Or it becomes incoherent, yeah. Yeah. And Dylan was pointing out that one might make the argument that any concept involves the idea of what it means to be a good X anytime you're talking about something, which is some contemporary philosophers have made, and not just postmodernists, but pragmatists have made that sort of claim.
0: He doesn't talk about Quine very much, but he does bring him up in terms of the refutation of empiricism and the theory ladenness of concepts. And I sort of wish he had talked more about that because it seems to me that he's doing something like that in his criticism of Well, the whole enlightenment, but also in particular emotivism, that he's considering them kind of the radical empiricists of ethical philosophy and making a go at them in that respect.
2: We should point out that this is kind of a surprising sort of claim, the idea that we're going to get some sort of return to Aristotelian teleology, which is widely rejected, especially because of modern science. So it's rejected not just by Hume, but by most contemporary philosophers, and McIntyre knows that. So it's kind of a tough road to hoe.
1: Right. And his elaboration, this is mostly in Chapter 7, of exactly what's wrong with the science is very underdeveloped, I think. So Chapter 7 is where he gets right at... yeah. The distinction between facts and values. And he thinks really the concept of fact, as we consider it now, is something that just really came up in the 17th, 18th century. And it assumes that the observer can confront a fact face-to-face without any theoretical interpretation interposing itself. as a quote. So that beforehand, not that they would have thought of this, not that people before them were all postmodernists and thought that the subjective is interminably bound up with the objective, but just the way that they used claims had this element, it did not have it sort of broken out in that way. And in fact, when I initially hear the examples you were giving about the farmer or the watch, the analytic part of me wants to say, okay, well, so there's a normative component and then there's a descriptive component in there and we can take them apart. And so then say, yes, there is a normative premise there. At least he's going to want to say, I think, that that's arbitrary for us to say, oh, well, the basic situation is really the normative component distinguished from the descriptive component. There's no actual justification for that, that this is sort of getting at another yeah. one of those things in our Saussure episode, that what we consider the basics of language, or this is in the Nelson Goodman one as well, is culturally dependent, that for them, man as something with a normative component built in, for the ancients, that was the basic, And to say that they really were using this complex thing that is a little historically ignorant, is imposing our current schema
0: upon the past. Well, in fact, I think he would argue and says as much in several places that this is just factually wrong, that to understand that a human being is something absent the culture of human beings is just to misunderstand fundamentally what a human being is to try to understand a person, a man, mankind, humankind, a human being, an individual, any of those things outside of the notion of culture as well. And by proxy, the notion of the history that led to it and that embeddedness, he says, is just wrong.
1: Well, how does that relate exactly to teleology? Because that's less clear that you can say, Yeah. yeah, of course, human beings are in a culture and have a history and all this, but that doesn't mean there's an objective good that each human being is supposed to obtain or anything like that. Well,
2: we'll see. We'll see later on that the culture and tradition and social role are meant to provide what the good is for the individual to some extent, right?
0: Yeah, and I think we have to be really careful about layering too much on teleology as being a single univocal thing, because while he doesn't want to admit genuine plurality. His discussion of virtue has more to do with understanding what virtues are and also understanding that virtues provide guidance. But he's very clear that there is disagreements about what virtues are and therefore what constitutes a good person.
2: This is where he sees a difference between himself and Aristotle. and He goes into this in chapters 14 or 15, but yeah.
0: Right. The focus of the teleology is on the notion that we are individual actors that are goal oriented, and I think you can, and he does make the much softer claim that it's not a directedness like being yanked around by a chain, and that's in some ways a uh, enlightenment misunderstanding of teleology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that the teleology is not mechanical, and so when you read it through enlightenment language, then you just misunderstand even what Aristotle meant by a directedness, and that. As individual actors, we have goals.
2: I don't think it's enough for an account to be teleological to say that we have goals.
3: I think it's around page 52 or in that section. He characterizes the Aristotelian moral schema as requiring man as he happens to be, and then man as he could be if he realized his essential nature. And he says this requires three essential elements, the potentiality to act, an account of the essence of man as rational because that's what's required to recognize what your central nature is. And then a telos, which is the, I think the essential nature itself. And that these three elements are the key parts to the Aristotelian moral philosophy, at least outlaid in Nicomachean ethics. And his claim is that this view of ethics, if you will, as the movement from the untutored state to the realized telos, which is uncovered through reason, persists through the scholastics. I think he says it breaks with Protestantism and something called Jensenite or Jensenist Catholicism.
2: So, what is the Aristotle's conception of teleology? Let's try and explain it because it's largely biological, right? Which is something. Yes, yeah. for Aristotle, for sure. Which is where McIntyre will differ. Yeah.
1: It's biological, but also social because of Aristotle's unitary layered view of the relationship between the individual and society. That not only do we as individual organisms have sort of an objective good that we are growing toward just in the way that a plant does. And you can see, oh, that plant is growing strong and healthy. You can see that animal is vibrant and healthy and running fast and doing what it's supposed to do. Well, we have our own nature like that. But part of that nature is also being social, that we are a social animal. So that's a big break, according to McIntyre, between Aristotle and modern liberalism, which would look at the same kind of thing if you look at, say, Ayn Rand, who explicitly says, yes, Aristotle's great. That's what I want us to be. But she interprets that entirely as an individual, as a selfish individual, that the society is only going to suck you down. Whereas for Aristotle, it's essential that friendships... And these reciprocal relationships and all this is feeding into what the individual
2: good is. Let's focus on being a plant and then we'll have friends after that. (laughs) I think the example of being a plant is good because the simpler example really helps to explain the concept of teleology here, which is that there's some function that's built in so that we can tell when a plant is unhealthy, for instance because the way the organism is structured it's striving to do certain things even if something fails and the plant is um let's say failing to take in nutrition from the soil or something like that its roots are failing let's say we can look at the structure of the whole organism and see that that particular function is important to the tendency of the whole, which is to survive and to reproduce. So in a way, we can establish what looks like an evaluative claim or a normative claim by saying, yeah, something's wrong with the plant. There's something bad here because this part is not in accordance with the telos of the whole. Natural scientists might say, well, you can look at that in two ways. You can look at that as there being a telos built in, or you can just say, we're not going to make any claims about what's good or bad here. It's just either the thing tends to reproduce and survive or it doesn't. And there's a further normative, you know, as Mark was trying to point out earlier, you might in your analytic or modern science point of view, try and tease out the normative from the purely factual claims. But for Aristotle, it looks like you want to combine those into a single fact about the plant.
0: It seems to me that Aristotle probably would be not as fundamentally Darwinian as the way you put it. No, he talks about survival and reproduction. I think he probably means more than...
2: Not for a plant. I mean, he builds up the plant example. There are certain functions to a plant, and then then you get to animals, and there's a further... There's a social element to many animals, and then you get to human beings, and you add reason.
1: Are you saying that the well-developed plant is green and beautiful and things like that, where that's not strictly a Darwinian, we might say, from a point of view of reproduction, that's a secondary? Well, you
2: know, I'm going on very old memory here, but there's the nutritive okay. function of the plant, and then yes. there's the—what's the other?
1: I thought nutritive is the only one the plant had. Maybe.
2: Maybe. But- The point of that is to keep being. So we don't have to say survival, if that sounds too Dorinian, but the plan is trying to continue being what it is, or it's working to be what it is. The idea is that there's a tremendous, when you look at an organism like that, it seems like it's not merely some sort of passive thing, which just continues existing by virtue of some sort of inertia. There's actually a tremendous amount of work that goes into something sustaining its own existence, being what it is. And that work tends towards that goal of keeping it existing, let's say. And keeping its species existing, which is where the reproduction comes in. So the species level is also important here. For Aristotle, species was a little bit different, of course, than for
0: Darwin. So that notion of having activity, intrinsic activity, and potential that that activity will both be constantly realizing and trying to actualize. This is all very Aristotelian language, just saying that an entity like a plant has certain potentials that when they are fully actualized will result in the plant as being most in its essence. And it's not that you couldn't have a plant that was stunted in some way. You could have a tree that was planted too close to a building and did not flourish. And it's still, you know, that oak tree, right? But it's not the quintessential example of a fully flourishing oak tree,
2: It hasn't actualized its full potential. So yeah, say it falls in bad soil and it's, yes, but it's still striving to. There's a sense in which the work, you could examine the organism and look at what its functions are and what it's doing, and you would see what it's trying to be. Even if its actual form is not the full, nice, big oak tree, you could determine that that's what it's tending
0: towards. That's the talos. This will become central to his notion of politics, of what the proper function of the state is regarding the good of individuals and and the good of the community
2: yeah as mark was pointing out so at the plant is just where we begin and then we with human beings we have to add on these different layers and the, the social and the political and the rational are important parts of what constitutes the human telos
1: i don't want to go too much into aristotle here too late right, in fact we already had
2: i think we just wrapped that up right?
1: episode five go back and listen to that on our nick McKean ethics then we'll have some more in upcoming episodes.
2: No, but that, that was a good summary. We don't just yes. want to throw around the word talos all day without.
1: No, no, that's true. And I think the important thing to get out of this is whether there's any way, even on Aristotle's account, to look at telos as a purely descriptive matter that, look, I observe a lot of trees and I see that they tend to grow in this way. And so therefore, that is the normal. And then I could say that by comparison, can't we look at, so a lot of modern people that don't have this teleological take might still say, oh, look at human nature, that humans tend to do best. Under these sort of conditions. So let's do that. I mean, it seems like that is not out of our conceptual ability. Whereas McIntyre seems to be saying something fundamental was lost. That the notion of tilos here was not something that the modern scientist could really be down with, that it involves some metaphysical component that involves something that is not just reading off the data.
2: From the modern standpoint, you can say that a plan is healthy or unhealthy, but it's an added step to say that that's good or bad. So if you say, well, of course, normativity is built in because being healthy is better with human beings in terms of psychological health and so on, you could say it's obvious what's healthy and not healthy. And we just have to look at that and then we see what's good or bad for us. But the point Hume or a contemporary might want to make is that it's an added step to say that being healthy is good. And many people will not choose that. and they'll say, why should I do it? And that's where someone objecting to teleology might say that that account begins to fall apart.
0: Well, it doesn't seem to me that Aristotle would fall victim to the criticism that just because somebody misunderstands or does not go towards their own good, that means that teleology or his version of teleology is wrong.
2: It's an assumption to say that it is their own
0: good. Or even most of them. I Again,
1: you can tell with plants sort of which ones are the flourishing, because that's the norm. Most of them get that way. If they have the regular normal conditions and are not deprived of light and all of that stuff, then they'll get that way. Whereas humans, he wants to say virtue is something a little bit rare. And that could be just because the proper conditions for it are rare, that you have to have a proper state, and that's really hard to achieve. But still, there's something, especially if we're going to then try to apply that ourselves – in the modern age. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different problems that come up with that that we'll get into. Certainly, this outline we've given of Aristotle doesn't sound that different than some of the other more modern moral philosophers we've talked about. Somebody like a utilitarian that looks at us, oh, there's pain and pleasure, and it not pleasure better than pain? And so therefore, we've established something about human nature, and therefore, what's good for us, etc. But there's supposedly, according to McIntyre, It's not that Aristotle and the modern person are equally wrong in deriving ought from is, that there was something just fundamentally different conceptually in the way Aristotle and his contemporaries looked at this that were missing now, that made it correct for later people to, as you say, say you can't get ought from is. That's just because the notion of is has evolved linguistically, conceptually, whatever, over time.
2: Well, McIntyre's claim, right, is that the good for an organism is a fact about it.
1: He acknowledges one of the reasons that you've brought up in some past podcasts, like in the Nietzsche one why we would reject this idea of health being good, and therefore we know what the good is, and there is virtue right there, is that goods are heterogeneous. There are too many different ways to live a life that seem attractive to us in certain guises.
2: Right. But he's still going with the idea that the good is a fact, which is essential to teleology. He doesn't want to give up teleology. He's going to give a non-biological account of teleology later based on narrative and all that stuff. But I don't think he wants to get away from the idea that the good is factual.
1: Right. But it's It's not not based based on on the biology. Because you are a human being, period, for Aristotle, there is a certain kind of good for you. Now, Aristotle does hedge that and say, well, maybe you're just a slave. Maybe you're just fucked up and that good is not going to be available to you. But for the good specimens,
0: (laughs) it's sort of circular. That's perfectly consistent, right? I mean, that's no different than what we just said about a tree that's planted too close to the building, right? Right. I'm not objecting to that.
2: One of the important things to note here is that the good for each organism, right, is specified in relationship to its natural kind. So if that kind changes, its good changes. And so you get all sorts of problems with, you know, a sociopath might say, and a serial killer might say. Well, your good is just different from mine. I'm constituted differently. And then you say to him, well, human beings are, have a characteristic good. They're usually structured in a certain way. If they follow that good, they'll do some, you know, these sorts of things and have these sorts of virtues. And the sociopath might come back and say, well, actually, I'm structured a different way. I'm, yes, I'm different from everyone else, but I'm a, in a way, I'm a different kind. And my good is different. And my good happens to involve going around slicing people up. So there are all sorts of problems that you get with trying to give this sort of teleological account. Establishing what's a, the natural kind is extremely important to the whole account. And if you don't believe in natural kinds, you begin to have problems. So I think Marx's mentioning of slaves is apropos there.
3: This is a much more extensive of Aristotelian virtue ethics and his teleology and biology than McIntyre gives in the book. I
2: wish he had explained more of it. I mean, the entire book is vague on the details of
3: teleology,
2: not just Aristotle's, but his own. Yeah. What did you take then, Seth? What's
1: his modern picture? Can you sum it up for us? What's his replacement?
3: Well, sum up his replacement, jump straight there. I think we ought to at least say why the Enlightenment. He's got a chapter called, you know, The Failure of the Enlightenment Project. Okay. How do we get from there to there? The short answer is... When you have the advent of Protestantism and this Jensenist Catholicism somehow gets a little bit denuded, the scope and the bounds and the reach of reason get limited. And so reason is no longer able to determine what the true end of mankind or of a human being is. So if you can't discover your telos via reason, then you don't have a telos essentially. And so what happens is that our beliefs become founded on nature, habit, and custom. And it's basically that break in the chain to just go back and say that ethics is about the movement from your as-is or untutored state through to your realized telos and essential nature that if you cannot discover your essential nature and you try to base morality on human nature as opposed to striving towards your essential nature, then the project will ultimately fail. So he essentially says that the Enlightenment project fails because we no longer accept the idea that we are able to uncover something towards which we should strive. Right, and he
1: gives a lot of examples of different philosophers, and he really, he makes this interesting connection between what we might think is locked up ivory tower philosophy and the public sphere, that the sort of conflicts that philosophers were arguing over in the 17th and 18th century are being played out writ large in politics and social life among regular people now, that he really sees a, because it's the same cultural shift, it's going to be reflected in all levels. It's not just These cloistered Mm -hmm. philosophers arguing esoteric things amongst themselves. As you're saying, we ran out of resources to be able to give this direct connection between an analysis of human nature and our essential end. Because we got rid of essences, we got rid of final cause talk, all this stuff was from Aristotle. And from a scientific point of view, I don't know, McIntyre doesn't give enough in the book for us to judge this either way. Mm -hmm. But certainly... There was good justification at the time that if you're trying to do science, talk of final causes, in other words, the built-in purposes, the telos in things... Just was not judged to be that useful because Aristotle would apply it to things in physics too, right? Why does the rock fall when you drop it? Because it has earth and it wants to go down. And that just was rightly seen as something to be overcome. And I think McIntyre yeah. is saying that it was wrong, that, you know, that might be right when you're talking about physics, but for us to think then that we could give an account of human behavior only referring to mechanistic right. considerations is... Fundamentally screwed up, and we can see that actually in the way the social sciences have evolved that we think that the Marxists and lots of others thought that you could give these empirical generalizations. Really, economics is founded upon this assumption of how individual people and masses of people are going to behave. And uh, McIntyre makes the point that these are all just still pretensions, that the social sciences have not come up with generalizations of a sort comparable to what uh, chemistry and physics and stuff have come up with. And it's not just because they haven't gotten there yet. They're not going to.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to back up a little bit. I think the critical point is that the connecting link between human nature and morality requires telos. And that if you get rid of that, and you still try and derive morality from human nature, you get all sorts of problems. And that's really where the Enlightenment predicament comes from. You have Hume and others trying to derive morality from facts about human desires and passions, for instance. And then Kant comes along and tries to ground it in reason. And then there's utilitarianism. All of these are different, according to McIntyre, flailing attempts to establish a link between morality and human nature when The critical linking thing between those has disappeared, and that's telos or teleology. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our
1: store page, get it by supporting us through Patreon, or become a Partially Examined Life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support.